Let me invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. Ephesians chapter 1. I've mentioned before that there was a pastor over in the Grand Rapids area named Rob Bell. He's a pastor of Mars Hill Church, and he wrote a book called Love Wins. In that book, he argues that uh, all people will eventually make it to heaven, including people like Hitler and and the worst, some of the worst people in, in history because, well, love wins. Love wins in the end. God could never be so unloving, he says, to sentence a person to hell, and so everyone's going to make it to heaven. I hope you see that that's a godless way of looking at the Bible because he's only chosen to highlight or to think about the positive thoughts about God. I'm trying to say that God's fundamental moral characteristic is his moral attribute is love when i think you would agree that his fundamental moral characteristic or attribute is holiness that is because he is holy he must condemn sinners and um and so doing and in, in saying that love wins rob bell has actually ignored what god has actually said he's actually gone farther than what God has said and against what God has said. And I would argue or, or yeah, I would argue that we are susceptible to the same sort of error as Rob Bell when we come to difficult doctrines of Scripture. We want to think about God in a certain way, perhaps because we've always thought about him that way, or because we can't wrestle with the the alternative. If he is this way, then I, I can't see that how that would work. So I can't accept this doctrine. And we're susceptible to the same sort of mentality as him. Not that love wins, I'm not suggesting that, but just that when difficult doctrines come, like the doctrine of hell for him, he can't accept it because he can't accept the God who will punish people to hell. And we can be like that as well when we want to see God in a certain light rather than seeing in him how he wants us to see him. And uh, we come to one of those difficult doctrines this morning. It's called the doctrine of election. That is God's choice of some to the exclusion of others. But I am convinced that if we properly understand God's choice of us in salvation, it will lead not to seeing seeing God in a worse light, but seeing Him in a great way and giving Him the praise that is due to Him. I think part of the reason that God's choice of us, His election, bothers us is because we want to think that salvation is in some way up to us. We want to think that we have some power to bring ourselves to Christ and to help lead someone else when we don't. Yes, we can be used as instruments, and we'll talk about that at the end, but... but It's ultimately of God. And if we understand it rightly, the doctrine of election, as it's presented to us in Scripture, it should enliven us to praise God for His abundant blessings. And it should not stifle our efforts to spread the gospel for Him. Okay, Because that's that's some some mentality that comes up is, well, if God chose some to salvation and, and He didn't choose others, then why... 
Why does he need me? I don't, I don't need, to, need to do anything. All right, so what I want us to think about here this morning is, what does God say? What does God say about how we came to Him? And then determine our understanding of that based on what He says rather than on what we want to think about Him. So let me read our passage this morning for us, verses 3 through 14, Ephesians chapter 1. I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. This is the Word of God. What we're going to see today is that the purpose of our salvation is the glory of God. The purpose of your salvation is the glory of God. Now, let me begin by summarizing the passage for you, just showing you the structure of it, and then we'll break down um, the various uh, points and see how they fit into the main point. The main point, by the way, this is one sentence in the Greek language. If you look in your English Bible, you see it's broken down into several sentences. But in the Greek language, verses 3 through 14 is one sentence. And the main point of it is found in verse 3. It's the, the main verb. It's a command or or uh, um, an admonition. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the main point. We should praise God. That's what blessed means. We ought to praise God. We ought to give Him the glory that is due His name or ascribe to Him the glory that is due His name. Why should we do that? Well, the end of verse 3 tells us. Because He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Uh, in Christ. Okay, so that is that God has judicially placed us in a, in heaven with Christ, with all the inheritance that comes along with us. And we're not experiencing that now. You're not in heaven right now. Okay, you're not you're not receiving all the blessings of salvation right now. But you will. But you. But but the point here in verse three is that He has already put you in that place judicially, so that it's only a matter of time before this is carried out. All right, so that's the point. Paul's saying, praise God for your spiritual blessings. 
And then verses 4 through 14 explain what those blessings are. And let me just show you how he seems to structure this passage. At the end of verse 6, or, or just look at verse 6, he says, To the praise of the glory of his grace. And then look at verse 12. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. Then verse 14, at the end of the verse of the view, to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. The point here is, praise God for the spiritual blessings that you receive. All glory is due to God because of the spiritual blessings that you have. First, verses 4 through 6, because of the blessings, the spiritual blessings you have in God. And then it ends with, to the praise of His glory. Verses 7-12. through 12. Praise God for the spiritual blessings that you have in the Son to the praise of His glory. It ends that way. And then, verses 13 and 14. Praise God for the spiritual blessings you have in the Spirit to the praise of His glory. Okay, So we praise the triune God for the spiritual blessings that we have ultimately through Christ. This whole passage is kind of uh, focused on Christ as the exalted one. And uh, so, He has blessed us, verse 3, with every spiritual blessing. How has He blessed us? Well, number one, He's blessed us in the Father, verses 4 through 6. He's blessed us in the Father. And specifically, the Father has chosen us. Look at verse 4 with me. Just as He, God the Father, chose us in Him, the Son, before the foundation of the world. God chose us. Now, this is not the only way that Paul says that, that He chose us before the foundation of the world. But look at verse 5. He predestined us. That is, He determined beforehand. Verse 11. Also having obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose. Okay, And and at the end of verse 5, it says, it's according to the kind intention of His will. What does it mean to be chosen or to be predestined? Well, the word predestined is used only six times in the New Testament. And it always refers to God's prior choice, pre-choosing of, in this case, us for salvation. That God has marked us out beforehand to be saved. So I want you to come away with this morning based on what the Scriptures teach is that God chose you to salvation. God chose you to salvation. You say, well, it didn't feel like that at all. When I came to Christ, it felt like I was coming to God. That I was searching for God. But again, we can't base what we believe on what it feels like. We need to base what we believe on what the Bible says. And the Bible says, we didn't choose God, God chose us. What does 1 John say? Before I loved Him, He what? He loved me. Okay, We sing a song that says, Before I found Him, He found me. The point is that God pursued us because He had chosen us. And so we have to believe, we have to believe how we came to Christ based on what the Bible says. Notice the timing of His choice. Just so you don't think, you know, well, maybe I, I had some part in this. Look at verse 4. Just as He chose us in Him when? Before the foundation of the world. Before time even began. In eternity past, God chose you to salvation. 
And the means of this choice is at the very end of verse 4, these two words, in love. And I think that actually goes with the next verse, in love He predestined us. So the means of Him predestining you, of Him pre-choosing you, was love. It wasn't that He arbitrarily just said, well, I'll just choose these people who will come into existence at some point in in the future. And then, you know, well, I guess I chose these people and so I have to stick with them. No, instead it was in love. It was bound up in His love. Now, turn to Romans chapter 9 because I don't want you to think, well, this is the only place in the Scriptures that this is talked about and perhaps this is an unclear text and so we can kind of just dismiss it because I would suggest to you that this is talked about in several other places. I'm going to point you to three of them today, uh, particularly this one in Romans chapter 9. Here in Romans 9, Paul is talking about why some children, some people are children of God and some are not. And in verses 6 through 8, he says that not all are children of God who are descendants of Abraham, right? We know that. Not all Jewish people ethnically are Christians, right? We understand that. But rather, those who are chosen according to the children of promise. That's what Paul's talking about in the first several verses. And so then, in order to explain this to the people at the Roman church, he gives them an example in verses 11 through 13. He shows how how Jacob is chosen and not Esau. Look at verse 11. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works, works, but because of Him who calls. It was said to her, that is Rebecca, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay, so it's kind of an awkward uh, sentence there, kind of a long, almost a run-on sentence there. But the point is that God, verse 12, told Rebecca before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, that the older would serve the younger. He he talked about a structure, a choice. He was choosing Jacob, and Malachi chapter 3 says this very same thing. Jacob have I loved, and that is the idea of choosing him, and Esau have I hated. The idea is I haven't chosen him. Now you may think that that sounds arbitrary and unfair. Well, how could God do that? Before they even did anything, He chose them. And Paul expects us to think that way, and so he responds in verses 14 through 18. Follow along with me as I read. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. So here's our potential response. Well, that's not fair that He chose Jacob over Esau. That's not fair that He chose us in salvation over some other people. And Paul's response is, well, then are you saying that God is unjust? May it never be. There is no injustice in God. Look at verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I get to choose. Verse 16. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or on the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. So we get a window 
into God's mind here. One of the reasons that God chooses some people over others, that is, He has chosen them over others, is so that, verse 16, our salvation does not depend upon man or upon their will, but upon God. God's the one who determines upon whom He will have mercy. And this makes sense, right? If we think about this logically, look at verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Okay, You who say, that's not fair. And Paul's saying, who are you to answer back to God? Continue. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? God doesn't have to respond to us when we say, that's not fair. How can you choose one person over another? Because He's the potter and we are the clay. It would be as silly as if we're sitting at the the turntable there with our pot of clay or our pile of clay and we're making it into something and the clay just all of a sudden started talking to us and saying, what are you doing to me? Make me differently than you're making me now. It's foolish. That's what... Paul is saying about us when we say, God, you can't choose some people over others. It's as foolish as the clay speaking to the potter. And although God doesn't have to give us an answer, He's already given us one, right? So that it doesn't depend on our will, verse 16. But He's going to give us another reason in verses 22 through 24. See if you can find it. Paul does this in the form of a question. What if God although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. What is it? What does Paul say is God's purpose in having chosen us before the foundations of the world, beforehand, as it says here. What's the purpose? For His glory. Did you see that in verse 23? What if He did so to make the riches of His glory known? Is that okay? For God to proclaim His glory by choosing you? His choice of you is consistent with what Jesus said in John fifteen sixteen. You didn't choose me, but I chose you, he said. And I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. You didn't choose me. I chose you. Look back to Romans chapter 8 with me. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. And notice this great progression of God's work in your life with regard to salvation. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew. Okay, so what does that have to do with? He knew beforehand. He also predestined. He determined beforehand to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He also what? He called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Here's what it looks like to us. I'm pursuing God. I'm going after God. I express my acceptance of God through faith. And as a result of my faith, I am justified. 
And technically, chronologically, that is correct. But here's what God's telling you. That started a long time before you actually called upon God in faith. Because He foreknew you, He predestined you, and those whom He predestined, He's the one who called you. You didn't audibly hear God saying, hey, come to me. But God's, the power of God's Word is such that He was able to pull you out of your slavery to sin, which caused you to respond in faith and be justified. And those whom He justifies, He will glorify. You see the progression there? Turn back to Ephesians chapter 1. Why does God do this? Why does God... Why has He purposed to choose some and not others? He gives us three reasons in the text. Three purposes. Verse 4, at the end of the verse, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. The first purpose that God chose you was to be holy and blameless. Notice the progression here. It's not that because you were holy and blameless, God chose you. Okay, God didn't look down the corridors of time and see if you would be holy and blameless. But no, He chose you so that you would be holy and blameless. Ephesians 2.10 says that you are, you are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. God did something to you so that you would be something holy and blameless. That you would that you engage in good works. The second reason for God's election of you in these verses is found in verse five. He predestined us to adoption as sons. He did it so that you would be adopted. What does it mean to be adopted? It means to have the full rights and privileges of being part of a specific family, right? Some of you are adopted and you understand this very personally. Think about this for a second. Who is a part of God's original family? Who has God the Father been the father of eternally? And the answer is Christ. Think about all the benefits and privileges He has as being the Son of God. This is what you get. Because God has chosen you. You are now adopted into His family and treated as His Son. So, that means that you're not condemned. And that you receive an inheritance and blessing and you get to enjoy the presence of God forever just like His Son. And again, we see this here in verse 5 that it's according to the kind intention of His will. It's it's according to His great love. Look at the end of verse 6. Which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved that is in Jesus. We are accepted and it's truly a gift of His grace. And the only fitting response that we can have is the third reason why we are chosen. And that's found at the beginning of verse 6. And that is to the praise of the glory of His grace. The ultimate reason that you were chosen is not just so that you could... uh, so that you could be holy and blameless, or not just that you could be adopted, but ultimately that that, those things would lead to this greater purpose, that you would praise God for His glorious grace. This is God's 
purpose in choosing you. So we have the spiritual blessings in the Father, verses 4 through 6. Now we need to see the spiritual blessings in the Son, verses 7 through 12. The spiritual blessings in the Son. We could call these the blessings of election. Number one, redemption. In Him we have redemption through His blood. What does redemption imply? If we have been redeemed from something, what does it imply? That we were what? We were enslaved to something, right? We had to be bought back. That Christ had to pay a ransom to get us to Himself. And what was the price of that? What does the text say? Through what? His blood. This was the price of your redemption. And that's why we can sing with great joy about such a morbid thing as Christ's blood. Like we sang this morning, Come Thou Fount, verse 2, He to rescue me from danger interposed His precious blood. I mean, do you ever think about how, how morbid that is? Would you ever talk about a, a loved one who was dying and bleeding profusely as they died that, you know, they just had such precious blood? And people would look at us crazy for talking like that. But for Jesus, it was the price that was paid for our ransom. We said, you know, when we sang, I'd rather uh, have Jesus than anything. I'd rather be led by His nail-pierced hands. We love the blood of Jesus because it paid for our redemption. The second blessing we have in the Son is forgiveness. Verse 7 the middle of the verse says, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. We have trespassed, trespassed against the law of God, haven't we? And our lives were polluted with our own trespasses and only two things can remove us from those trespasses. Either God has to be unjust and say, well, you know what, we'll just look over those things and not take care of them. Or He has to be just and He has to forgive us. And obviously we know what God did. He was just because He condemned His Son in our place and He forgave us. This is the blessings, these are the blessings of election. We are redeemed. We are forgiven. This is all done according to the riches of God's grace which He lavished on us, verse 8 says. He just kept pouring it out. The third blessing of election that we find in the Son is illumination or um, an enlightenment, verses 8 through 10. Verse 9 says that He made known to us the mystery of His will. That is the summing up, verse 10, the summing up of all things in Christ. Here in, the, in this passage, we find out that this mystery has been hidden from Old Testament believers, but now has been revealed through the church of Jesus Christ. See that at the end of the verse, the summing up of all things, verse 10, in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. When will this be? When will the sum of all things be in Christ? Has this already happened? Notice the mystery points forward, verse 10, with a view to an administration. What we've been given, this mystery that we've been able to understand, is we have a view now of what this is going to be like of the summing up of all things to Christ. I mean, this didn't happen when Jesus was born. It didn't happen when He died on the cross or when He was raised from the dead. It's not now while He's in heaven awaiting His bride. 
Because notice, all things will be in subjection to His feet. Look at the end of verse 10. Things in heaven and things on the earth. And so this is still future. And perhaps a better way to think about this is to think about this from an Old Testament believer's perspective. When would they see the fullness of times coming? At what point in the future for them would Christ rule with a rod of iron and have His enemies at His feet? At what point in the future would Christ, the seed of the woman, crush the head of the serpent? At what point would Christ regain full authority over the earth? At what point would He reverse the curse? Was it a time when He was born? Now, they probably thought that, that it was, He only was coming one time and that He was going to come and rule as the Messiah in a, in a ruling type of function, in a kingly way. But we now know, this mystery has been revealed to us, that He's actually coming in two parts, right? He came, but was rejected. And now He's coming again. The point is, the Old Testament believer was looking to a time of the millennial kingdom when the curse on the earth and all people would be reversed, when Christ would rule as the King with a rod of iron and have His enemies at His feet, when He would crush the head of the serpent, the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ. One scholar puts it this way, in a world of confusion where things do not add up or make sense, we look forward to the time when everything will be brought into meaningful relationship under the headship of Christ. That's not now. That's still future. And that's been revealed to us. So we have this redemption, verse 7. We have forgiveness of sins. We have enlightenment or illumination. And then finally, verse 11, we have an inheritance. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. Notice, it's spoken of in the past tense. We have obtained an inheritance. But it refers to something that is still future, doesn't it? And and the authors of Scripture often do this, Paul particularly. He talks about something that is future being so certain that he talks about it in the past tense. And all of this, all the blessings that we have and being chosen by God are for one primary purpose. Look at verse 12 again with me. To the end, that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. Again, this doxological purpose is given that we would glorify God because of the blessings that we have in Christ. Look thirdly with me why we should praise God because of the spiritual blessings in the Spirit. Verses 13 and 14. Specifically, He owns us. In Him, verse 13, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, have also believed. You were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. You were sealed by the Holy Spirit. I've talked before about what a royal seal was in the ancient Near East. It was used to authenticate a letter that was being sent out from the king. Remember, Joseph had the signet ring of Pharaoh. And Mordecai had the signet ring of Xerxes. He was able to speak with ownership uh, on behalf of the king. That this was authentically 
from the King. And the Holy Spirit is our seal. He's our signet ring. He is the personal authentication of the inheritance that we've been guaranteed. He's a pledge, a down payment. That is, you know why... You know how you can know for sure that you will receive this inheritance that's being talked about? Because you have the Holy Spirit. You've been given the Spirit as a pledge. He's a down payment. With a view, the end of verse 14, to the redemption of God's own possession. And what is the purpose of all this? Why have we received the Holy Spirit? Again, end of verse 14, to the praise of His glory. It's a difficult topic to cover, particularly when we are bent away from this idea of God choosing us for a specific purpose. We should recognize at least two things this morning from this passage. Number one, God controls everything. God controls everything, including our salvation. We're happy to contribute God's control over all things to Him. Even the, the, you know, that God is in control, giving permission to Satan to, to, to accomplish the evil acts of men. That even God has that under control. But when it comes to salvation, we balk at that thought. That, that I had to have something to do with that. But think about this for a second. If salvation is outside of the control of God, that is, we independently choose whether we will accept Christ or reject Him, if it's all up to us, who receives the praise when we come to Christ? Who receives the praise when someone else is led to Christ by us? Okay, so God is in control of all things, including our salvation. He has chosen us. The second thing, and this is the key, I think, uh, point, the, the clear teaching of doctrine here in this passage is we must trust and believe in God's choice, His election. And the key to understanding God's election is to understand human depravity. When you rightly understand human depravity, you will rightly understand God's election. If you have a problem with the doctrine that says that God chose some to salvation and all others will be condemned, if you have a problem with that, then I would suggest to you that you don't understand how depraved we were as human beings. You don't understand how wicked we were. What we needed to be saved from. Let me illustrate. How do you view your salvation? Was it like you were floating on the water and you saw a rope and, and the rope was connected to the tree that was, on, that was on the shore and you started pulling yourself in? Is that how your salvation was? Or was it you were floating out in the water and someone had to throw you a life preserver and you had to grab on? Is that how you, just, you see your salvation? And if that's how you see your salvation, then I think you don't understand Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. We're going to get there in a few weeks, but Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 and Romans 8, 6, and 7. Turn over to chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2. Okay? And notice 
that you weren't just a, a you know, just kind of uh, in need of some help out there in the water. What does the text say in verse one? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. That you were God's enemy. You were you were dead. Other texts tell us that we hated God. That's what it means to be a depraved sinner. We are completely dead spiritually. Romans 8, 6, and 7 says that the mindset in the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. We don't subject ourselves to God, and we're not able to. You see, if God threw us a life preserver, not only would we uh, not want to pull ourselves to shore or or get on and, and be saved, but we were not able to. That's what Romans 8 says. We weren't able to. We were dead. We were floating in the water. Instead, the illustration of our salvation is more similar to us as a corpse floating on the water. And instead of God throwing out a life preserver, He pulls us out. And He gives us life. He breathes new life into us, which we didn't have. We should instead picture our salvation like Lazarus being raised from the dead. Right? What did Jesus do? Did He open up the tomb and throw in a cane or a walker? No. He said, Lazarus, come forth. Think about what what happened there at the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus. Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. You might be thinking, you know, what about the commands that we have in the Scripture to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved? It sounds like I'm expressing my faith and salvation follows. And I would say that that is true. That is the chronological order. But... but Who gave you life so that you could express faith? It's like Lazarus. What happened first? Did Lazarus obey the command to come forth or did Christ give him life first? Which one happened first? How good would a command be to someone who is completely dead and couldn't have life? In other words, in in, in a moment before Lazarus was able to obey the call to get up and come forth, Christ had to impart life to him, didn't he? This is what I'm telling you that happened at your salvation. You didn't understand this. You didn't see this when this was happening. All you heard was, be saved. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That's what you heard and you got up and you did it, didn't you? But you know what happened in a moment before that? God imparted life to you. God imparted life to you because you were dead. You can't obey the command to be saved until God imparts life to you. And then the result is that you will express your faith in Christ. Why will you do that? Because John 10 says, And my sheep know my voice, and they follow me. And when when I call my sheep, okay, remember Romans 8? 29 and 30, those who were called were justified. When I call my sheep, hey, it's time. They come because they're already mine. They were mine before the foundation of the earth. 
because I chose them. It was only a matter of time before they came. And when I called them, they came. And that's why the doctrine of election should not stifle our evangelistic efforts. Because Christ's sheep know Him and they will follow when they're given the command to do so. And the reason that we can continue to spread the Gospel because we are representatives of Jesus. We're like Jesus outside of the tombs. And we're saying to all sorts of spiritually dead people, come forth! Okay, For us it is repent and believe. And many of those people won't do that, will they? And that's because they're not His sheep. But we know that some will. Why? Because God will impart life to them and give them the ability to respond. You remember Romans 8, 6, and 7? They could not respond because they were depraved. And so who gets the glory in all that? Do we say, hey, look at me and my evangelistic efforts. Look at all these people I've won to Christ. Look at how I came to Christ. The doctrine of election bothers you. And you wonder, then, you know, you might be thinking, well, how could God condemn so many people to hell? If He's chosen some, all these other people are not chosen and they're going to hell. Why doesn't God save everyone like Rob Bell likes to think? And I would suggest to you that that's a wrong question. You know, they say there's no stupid questions, but that is a stupid question. Instead, you should be asking, why would God save anyone? We were all wretches. We were all His enemies. We were all dead. We deserved His wrath. And the question should not be, why does He allow some to be Condemned. Instead, it should be, why does He save some? Why does He save me? What did I do to deserve it? You see how the doctrine of God's election helps us to well up in, in praise to God. It wasn't of me. It was not a result of works. So that no one can boast. And this will lead us to praise God for His glorious grace. There's a great song that Don Carson wrote. He drew from this text of Scripture, Ephesians 1. And one of the verses reads this way, We were blessed in the heavenly realms long before being included in Christ. Since we heard the good news overwhelmed, we, we reach forward to seize paradise. And we shall see Him ourselves face to, face to face to the praise of His glorious grace. And then the chorus just goes on and repeats that. To the praise of His glorious grace. To the praise of His glorious grace. Do you know why you were chosen by God? It was so that you could not boast in your own salvation and so that all you could do when you realized and understood this doctrine but to look to God and say, why me? Not in a bad way, but in a good way. Why me, God? What did I deserve to, 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 get, your, to get your salvation? I didn't merit it. I didn't earn it. And so we repeat with Paul, to the praise of the glory 
of His grace. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, give us give us grace as we think about Your Word this morning and as we go from this place and, and reflect on what You have done for us in salvation. That You have saved us for Your glory and as we'll see in chapter 2, it's all of Your grace, not by works, so that we cannot boast. Lord, we do not understand why You chose us. We have an idea that 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 He did it so that we couldn't boast and so that we could praise You so that ultimately You would make us to be holy and blameless. There's lots of reason, but we pray that we would see the ultimate reason in Your choice of us. That we would see our, our insufficiency apart from Jesus Christ and praise You for Your grace in Jesus Christ. Thankful for our salvation today. Thankful for the grace that was shown to us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. May help us to live all of our days praising You for Your glorious grace. That the, the ultimate purpose and plan in all things to sum up all things in Christ, and one of the ways He does that is by bringing people who deserve to be condemned into His family into your family to be adopted as sons and daughters. We pray that we would align our purposes with yours and that we would ascribe to you the glory that is due to your name and that we would seek to see more creatures praise you for your worth. May this not stifle our responsibility and our desire to reach out to other people but may we stand as heralds and spokespersons recognizing that You have many people in this city and that all who are appointed to eternal life will believe. May You give us eyes to see and hearts that care. Strengthen us in our desire to reach people so that we can see more and more praise go to You. For You, are, you deserve all the glory that, that belongs to You all the glory that comes to Your name and all the glory that will be ascribed to You for all of eternity is due to You. You are the great triune God and we worship You for who You are and what You have done. We pray these things in the name of our great Savior. Amen.